Welcome back, everybody. How are we? How are we doing? How are we feeling? Embodying that earth wisdom, that goodness. Well, most of my stuff recently, particularly in relation to the podcast and other content that I've been producing for my books, which I have on Amazon, around archetypes and embodying that I am frequency, the perception or the I guess you could suggest the perspective that as you feel about reality or you feel about yourself, you embody that reflection back into your reality. Something that profoundly connects to this on a deeper level, particularly for people with, a, I guess you could say, a Celtic background or a, a, I'm a little bit loath to say British, but yeah, I mean, an Avalonian background is something I like connected to the, the earth mother, the sovereign frequency of, of the divine feminine and the divine masculine coming together. And that's not only something in Avalonian tradition, the Glastonbury tradition of the earth mother, but also in Egypt and the Hindu tradition where there's always been this masculine feminine marrying the Shiva and Shakti, Osiris and Isis, at the Avalon, Arthur and Gwydithi, Merlin and Morgan, and well before that, Lou and D the Dagda and the Morrigan and Bridget and Dana. There's been this consistent marrying of the, of the divine masculine with the divine feminine. But what I want to go in a bit of a different direction today, connecting this with my book that I wrote a few years ago, really started developing this Avalonian interest for me. It was following and diving, a plane awakening. And why and while I feel so drawn to talk about it, particularly with that relationship to the I am and the balancing of the divine masculine and divine feminine, something we are dealing with in our own reality, is this idea of when we're on the nature of the quest, whether it's a shamanic quest, and I've been seeing a little bit of that online, when we walk down the shaman's path, go to shaman's, yeah, the shaman's journey, it is somewhat of the nature of the quest, the vision quest, there's that process. And I found this even when I began doing shamanic healings with my healer and teacher, Anna. And this is when I was in corporate. Oh, would it be 10 years ago? Probably eight or nine years ago, I had my first shamanic healing, around about 14, 2014, 15. And once I began that, I started experiencing healings in relation to the masculine and the feminine. This need to have forgiveness and balance my masculine and feminine polarities. At the same time as I traveled and I did the Camino de Santiago, and I came back and later, I felt more drawn to the shamanic work and really that earth wisdom, particularly having lived in Ireland and these and visited Glastonbury, and these, these I guess, subconscious recollections or ref, reflections on the relationship with that, that Celtic shamanism that I felt drawn to. When I went back to Anna and I said, look, I want to I want to go to another level with the shamanism. And I explained that I'd actually created a narrative based on scripting my reality, working through the, the, the fool's journey of awakening from the fool to the magician. She explained to me that I had somewhat gone through the next step of the shamanism process, the vision quest, not only the Camino, but I'd scripted it, I'd embodied, I'd lived it through falling and diving and playing awakening. So I'd somewhat gone through that next shamanic vision process without even consciously being aware, being aware of it. I'd be drawn to it. And I think what has helped me understand it further and, and 
and go into another level, make it more practical, especially in terms of reality creation and wanting to bring forward our heart's purpose, which is talked about by Paula Coelho in The Pilgrimage of the Alchemist and all these other works, is it's very clear, this, this vision quest, this nature of the quest, particularly from a masculine perspective, in falling and diving with the characters of, of Matt and Simon. But what I've come to see more recently from a clearer perspective, particularly for Avalonian buffs, and you don't have to be an Avalonian expert or someone who really they're drawn to it, but while I began this podcast episode with talking about Arthur and Merlin and Guinevere and, and Morgan, I think it's helpful to see them all as one, as Liz and Steph and Matt and Simon. And Lucy's the high priestess is embodying all of them in following and dying of plain awakening. But taking Liz and Steph out of the picture just through a little bit and reflecting it back to Simon and Matt and what I felt drawn to focus on particularly is a masculine in a masculine embodied figure, person, personage in my reality, is is this interesting relationship to the nature of the quest which is popularized in before the Renaissance, probably what you would call, or not, and not even the Age of Enlightenment, it was somewhat of the Age of Chivalry, the Age of Knighthood. And it came out of this 11th, 12th century, particularly Southern France, and all these ideas that even built on earlier works around the Essenes and the Cathars and Gnosticism. But it was this age of the Arthurian Age where all these books connected to the Arthur, Arthurian tradition and Merlin and Guinevere all started to become popularised. And even though we don't know if Arthur exactly existed or his name was Arthur, because Arthur is also a, a title, it can mean the bear king. Arthur is known as the bear in Latin. And even Pendragon, dragon often meant king, in ancient southern lands so his name is arthur pendragon he's actually arthur head of the dragon and the head of the dragon is the king so he's the bear king is his name is his title but before we even uh, or even identify an exact person i have my suspicions about who he may be based on but the historical arthur was supposed to be if he did exist around three four hundred AD, around the collapse of the Roman Empire, as the Saxons were beginning to migrate into the UK, what's now known as the UK, the United Kingdom. But Britain, I guess is that name for it, but Britain was also part of that, I guess you could say Avalon, or the Celts. But even the Celts is a, is a title that's, that's designated to them when they also had tribal names. So we could, I guess we can call them the Britons, but these were people that were devoted to the goddess and the frequency of the earth. And they, were, they populated both Ireland and, and parts of ancient Britain. And there was also connections to parts of Europe as well, Spain and France, particularly France before the oncoming of, of Caesar. So in this part, like as a lot of this known, England and France are very close neighbours. But back in the time, and there's a lot of myths around this, I think there's the myth I was reading about the other day, in relation to Lou and Lude. Um, and it's it's interesting that, that I was talking about in the previous podcast around Mercury and Odin. And Mercury was seen as a, by Caesar, when he had to describe the, the Britain's most renowned god or who they worship the most. 
and his type. He described it as Mercury, but Mercury for him was based on Lu. So Lu and Lud had these two, and even London is believed to be related to Luden. Lou is very much like a Mercury figure, and he has a relation with Arthur. But going back thousands of years, he's somewhat of a prototype for Arthur. He's the master of all arts. But Lou is, was seen in, in this myth, at least, for a relationship with the dragons and the, and the fighting dragons. Lou was the the French brother, and Lud was the or Lud was the um, which a Ludgate is also named after, is the the British counterpart. So these two brothers. So in this perspective, France and England were brothers, brothers in terms of that, both a patrilineal perspective, a brotherly, but also in nations. And it's very clear, even though they're, the Celts will call them that title, made up of different tribal nations, and that also connected over Ireland, the British people, I guess you call Britain, but Britain, where does come, Britain come from? Well, the, the, that's another perspective. Bree, Bri, Bridget. The, the bright ones, Bridget as the goddess of sovereignty. That, well, we'll get onto that a little bit further in this in this podcast. But these people of Britain, or the goddess, or the Earth Mother, or the frequency of Avalon, the, the divine masculine and feminine, the, the stories that were coming out in around the, the 11th, 12th, 1200s, well after the Romans had, had populated Britain and France, was... They were based on stories about 800 years earlier. So it's this interesting fusing that we see even, you know, I guess the last 100 years, again, on in film, we've seen a lot of Arthurian and films and books where they, they wear the, the, the armour, and the armour is very much from the Norman age, and that's around 11, 1200. But the historical Arthur would not have worn armour, or not at least not that steel or iron armour, because it... Or, because it wasn't seen as, or silver, I should probably say, um, because it was a it was a much earlier age. But what is happening in this? It's it's, it's interesting that these these stories, and the one I particularly want to focus on, especially in relation to the falling and dying plane and awakening, is yeah, the quest of the Holy Grail and the story of Merlin, etc., was by Christian de Troyes or Christian of Troyes or Troyes. And he was supposed to be based in the, the area of Aquitaine in southern France. He was a poet and he was connected with the court of that region. And that court of Aquitaine, even at that, that time, interestingly, and I, I won't make this a big cool historical essay, but um, it is interesting that the, the, the ruler of that area was actually somewhat of the Norman queen. And the Normans were, the, the Norman age was very much connected with this, or this, yeah, this leadership of, of Vikings, of Viking leadership. Vikings who had become somewhat civilized and were wanting to trace the, the ancient roots of the land and the earth. And while the Vikings of, I talked about with Odin and Thray and Thor and Loki, uh, existing in, in their lands and their countries, the Vikings who'd become Normans or Northmen of France and then eventually became the rulers of England through the Battle of Hastings around this time in 1066. These Norman descendants who were originally Vikings were now very interested in Celtic stories and mythology. And what comes out of this tradition is, is this story, the quest of the Holy Grail around Percival and Gwaine. So it's very interesting that we, we think about 
Arthur as this this kind of the head dragon who is this leader and even Arthur's stories uh, and Arthur's historical tradition goes back to to Wales and, and Wales perhaps being somewhat of a connected more with the, the British language and the British tradition that where a lot of that was lost or at least um, uh, when the, the Saxons came through with Rome, um, the collapse of the Roman Empire around this Arthurian age when Arthur's fighting to preserve the British stories and tradition against the oncoming Saxons and the Saxons had somewhat of a Viking connection too around 400 AD. It's interesting with somewhat 800 years later that we're hearing these Norman stories retelling Arthur in somewhat of a, a modern context for them around 1200. And he, he's, he's somewhat now living in Norman castles. He's wearing Norman armour and he has a Norman tradition, but it's still based on the historical context of Arthur as a, as a, as a chieftain. But what's happening here is there's a modern context, but using ancient traditional myths. And either Excalibur, the sword itself, is believed to be based on Caliburno. It's a sword held by the, the king of the Irish, Nuada, and Nodens, or Nodan, who's also connected to Lud, Luth, Lu, and Lud. So we're, we're getting this blending of traditions and blending of myths and blending of stories. But what I want to focus on, particularly around Gawain and Percival, is in this narrative, the, the, and it, especially what I somewhat tapped into unconsciously or subconsciously with Simon and, and Gawain, is the nature of the quest and the Holy Grail and how the Holy Grail isn't necessarily only a means of the cup, but it's also a means of dissolving identity. So we see and we perceive in this story, the Crest of the Holy Grail, while Arthur is the figurehead of, of the stories of our modern age, in this perspective, he takes someone to the back seat. He is the leader of, of, of this, this kingdom of Camelot, but it's more of the symbolic title. He's a symbolic king. What we're focused on, particularly in, this, in the nature of the narrative, is, is the knights, particularly the two predominant knights who go out on this quest, which is Percival, Egwene. And while all the other knights are also led on this quest and there's different stories and there's different connections and what also gets them moving towards this Holy Grail and it's somewhat of the, we said early on with different traditions, but in the court of Arthur, the queen is somewhat dishonoured. In one story, someone uh, throws wine on the queen or disrespects the queen and because the queen is also symbolic with water, feminine, to throw wine on the queen or disrespect the queen it's also to plunge the land into a space a space of of chaos in effect it needs a, some form of re regeneration so that's one version of the myth what is also happening particularly with the personal grain traditions is both personal grain you can see them as one perspective or one one embodied masculine that masculine knight who is leading towards becoming the arthur and Arthur, while he's married to Guinevere, is somewhat of the, the masculine and the feminine because he's married the earth, the land that Guinevere represents. In this tradition, Gwain as a questing knight is somewhat of like Matt in Thawing and Diving. He's very much a societal superhero. He's good at, at pleasing and, and questing and succeeding. And he does derive a certain amount of worth through his ability to please and impress others. At the other end of that scale is Percival, and Percival is somewhat like a naive fool energy, more like Simon, with falling and dying and playing awakening. Percival comes in this space of very much connected to the mother. 
he's probably more if you could if you're putting on the two perspectives of the bath or Guinevere. Percival would be closer to Guinevere as as her as her kind of her knightly representative, whereas Gwen would be closer to Arthur, and it's believed Gwen is actually a relation of Arthur. He's somewhat of a foster son in being a nephew of Arthur. So there's the two masculine feminine perspectives going out on this quest, and while it is embodied as men in this perspective, you can also draw this out to women, particularly in any pray love, with Liz being the, the predominant feminine quest character who has to embody both the the Gwaine and personal attributes. But that might be something to talk about in another podcast. But for this perspective, particularly for me with Gwaine and, and Percival in relation to Matt and Simon, my perspective is because Gwaine is such a, a societal superhero, he succeeds, he's, he's popular, he's successful within the, the knightly court of Camelot to realise his I am divinity, his holy grail, that he's the creator of his reality. He has to ultimately surrender or let go of those attributes of, or attachment, I should say, that to that success. He has to find a bigger meaning to his reality beyond the pure successful forms or attachment to pleasing. Ultimately, he has to become more like Percival. And for Percival, who's been this full energy, who's lived with the mother, and the mother has um, somewhat mothered, overly mothered him because she lost her husband and she's lost all Percival's older brothers. He's become over-mothered and he's been, even when people try to, to get uh, Percival to, to reach out and lead the, escape, the, the realm of the mother, a little bit like Persephone in the Greek tradition, which she's wanted to uh, get away or somewhat escape the, the clutches of Demeter who's seen as the Earth Mother in the Greek tradition. She she keeps Persephone in the realm of, of idyllic dwelling in that forest and it's peaceful, it's beautiful, it's natural. But she's never able to leave the fields. So she doesn't grow, she stays in the, in the realms of the Mother. And it's not until Hades, the shadow, actually comes along the masculine, pulls Persephone out of that, of that story to another realm, that Persephone becomes more of the queen energy. So similarly for Percival and Persephone, I think there's a clear parallel even with the names. Percival, when the knights come to him and and, and he's because he looks up to the knights, but his mother won't let him leave the land. But ultimately, he he meets them and he he expresses an intention. He wants to become more like them. That caused him to leave the mother. And while there's different stories around the Percival myth, Percival legend, in some stories the mother does die. Once he leaves her, she does die of grief or she dies of sorrow. And it's somewhat of the metaphor that he has to let the mother die. He has to let the dependency to the mother die so that he starts embodying the masculine. And that leads him to that journey of, towards the Fisher King and meeting the Fisher King and healing the masculine because he's got a masculine wound. But it might not be necessarily his wound. It's the wound he's inherited from the father or the, the deceased brothers. So he's becoming more aligned with the masculine because he's already embodied with the feminine. He has some feminine superpower. And there is that story around in a lot of ancient myths when you've been over-mothered, over-fed, even on the, on, they talk about it with, with breast milk, a baby that's been over-fed on the mother is somewhat superpower. And that's what Percival, he's somewhat of an unusual figure when he turns up to the court of Arthur. 
that he's naive, he, he, he dresses funny, he does a, he, he looks out of place. He hasn't got the, the social manners and mores of the knights or the pleasing attributes of Gwen. But what he does have is a super warrior ability. He's under the guise of a feminine. He's under the guise of Lucy in Falling a Diamond with Simon because he's being protected by that energy. But so while Simon is actually very much protected by Lucy, Lucy's come to him as that custodian. Lucy's also wanting to work with Matt. And that's why Matt is feeling drawn to her, drawn to work with her. And it's a similar aspect also in the personal myth of the Christophe Grail by Detroit that Gwaine, while he's also, he's also been somewhat protected by the feminine. And while he's identified his worth similarly through his ability to please, for his ability to actually dis, detach this, this need for excessive identity, he has to humble himself. He has to go through a different quest to what Percival goes through. So what happens is the, the two knights therefore go out on this quest, this quest of the Holy Grail. And it's interesting that the story by Credin de Trot is never actually finished. The quest is finished somewhat halfway and people and scholars speculate why does it finish without them actually really resolving it. But well, maybe that's part of the solution, part of the mystery to that. And I'll, I'll leave it for you to speculate. And if you're interested in learning more about that, I can recommend some books about that, particularly The Quest of the Holy Grail by de Trot. Um, the Mallory works around the Arthurian tradition, and particularly John Mark Cult and his, his work around Celtic women, the Celts, and the story of the goddess of solitary with, with the Arthurian tradition. But why and while I'm bringing all this up is because I do feel it's important to understand that on that, particularly on the spiritual awakened perspective, it seems like for me, either the writings falling and diving plane awakening and scripted my own narrative from a shamanic perspective, we have to marry those two masculine feminine aspects that the Percival and Glane represent to facilitate detachment from identity and embody our sovereign power. Because for me, Simon, while he's very powerful, he's been that over-mothered figure and he has these attributes of detachment from identity something like a yogi space in falling and diving and you see him bond with brian in that space it gets to the point where simon has to let go of that attachment to the mother he has to get to a point where he becomes more embodied his masculine and he does he becomes somewhat of the knight and while he it keeps meeting these feminine aspects it's very clear or at least particularly john markell talks about this that the, the women are his meaning are aspects of the goddess, the goddess of sovereignty, the Guinevere, uh, the empress embodied from the major arcana. So he's meaning these attributes who represented that custodian for him. But at the same time, he's becoming more embodied in the world. So the, the feminine is, is, you could say, overseeing his journey to become more masculine. And, but his masculine service is ultimately about devotion to feminine. So it's seen more clearly that he is, and even in, if you look up Google the Holy Grail, who found the Holy Grail, quite, or even in the Indiana Jones movie, I think it's Percival who, who protects the, gra the Grail in that, from a modern context. Percival seen as the one that finds the Grail, even though the original narrative is not finished, because he does find the feminine. He's embodied in the feminine, and the feminine, particularly as a chalice that holds water, holds blood, holds a wound, like the feminine. Percival already is someone of the Grail. 
he means the grail of the of the veil of the valley which personal actually can mean it's a certain translation he's of the valley the valley is also someone of a chalice as well from a geographical perspective when you think of the valley at a landscape so personal does find the grail but he's also embodying the grail but what is happening in this is perspective even though he's already the grail keeper and he's the person that is perceived as finding it that's not to say grain doesn't either but grain is just on a separate journey and what i would like to really say from more a metaphorical perspective than a conceptual perspective because these are all characters embodying archetypes and spaces and states of consciousness is it's important to see that both grain and percival and matt and simon are somewhat of the same perspective that even in Arthur and Merlin, we, we split them for their, their attributes, but Merlin is someone of the, is the Simon energy. He's more in the magician energy, like Percival. Whereas Arthur is more like Wayne, you know, he's more like Matt, he's a king energy. But in terms of the embodied masculine to be a govern the realm of consciousness, it's important to marry our, our masculine and feminine attributes within us and you could also perhaps compare that and i'm talking from a male perspective but when i look at a masculine and feminine it's almost like your king aspect your solitary your mat um, your arthurian aspect as, as the king is is that leadership whether you're a male or female but your creativity your ability to work with nature the elements manifestation is your feminine is your merlin so Merlin and Morgan are somewhat the same person as Arthur and Guinevere in the same aspect. So that's what Arthur and Mer um, Morgan seen as the sister of Arthur in a lot of these traditions. Morgan the Morrigan and the Dagda who, who couples with the Morrigan in the ancient Celtic tradition. It's a symbolic representation of the king of the land has to marry the earth, the feminine. Thanks again for being a part of this. Praying in 10 it was a value for you. If you're interested in learning more about it, not only in the works I recommend, I definitely suggest following a dining at Plate Awakening. It's an interesting journey, but you can put yourself in the perspective of Matt or Simon or Liz or Steph, or even the, the older characters, the older attributes. And perceive how the, the archetypes and the, and the characters are somewhat of a metaphor for our own journey of awakening, our own journey of embodiment of our own power, like that solitary, reconciling that inner. Arthur Gwydion and Merlin and Merlin and Morgan, uh, uh, how would you come on that? A Merlin or uh, an Arthur within you. Bye for now.